Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can find me on Twitter at ExporterTax. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to be joined by Nita Asher. Nita is a partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services Group, specializing in international taxation. Before joining PwC, Nita was legislative counsel at the Joint Committee of Taxation from 2017 to 2019 when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was enacted. Nita, welcome back to the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Happy to be here, Doug. Well, before we dive in to the potential Biden tax proposals and what that mean may mean for corporate America and you know other taxpayers wanted to just take your temperature it has been a, a crazy news cycle for the the many many weeks and um, after the election I decided that I wanted to to take a little break from the amount of news that I was consuming. And I'm guessing many of our listeners had a, had a similar experience. And so, um, frankly, I, I'd been kind of putting off a bunch of those series that, that many of our colleagues and friends have been recommending and have frankly turned to that as, as my most recent guilty pleasure. I'll, I'll particularly make a shout out to the marvelous Mrs. Maisel that my wife and I have been enjoying immensely. But I, I know you've been trying to take a similar break from, from news or at least maybe the amount that you've been consuming. I, I didn't realize that this was going to turn into like a, a self-help kind of a podcast. But um, what have you been doing during the, the, the pandemic and the post-election? if anything to to relieve yourself of the stress of the new the, of the news cycle Doug I, I've, I've tried many things including um, Netflix but I have recently found solace in uh, contemporary fiction one might even call it romance novels um, just something light to have in hand after a day of, of going through you know technical texts updates and and you know they can break from the news so um that that's where i am right now i will give a shout out to sonali dev um who is a contemporary indian american author and um you know for some light reading and um something to help you know take a break from from the news cycle well, hopefully our listeners think you're never going to, you're always going to learn something new on the cross-border tax talk. So that's, that's a new author for, for my list. Um, I like the way you described it as contemporary fiction. Um, if that is the case, I'm, I'm not really a big contemporary fiction, at least that particular genre kind of guy, but uh, um, great for our listeners to hear. All right. So, so Nita, we have a, a new Congress in, in place, I think. Many of us were were surprised to see that the Democrats now control the Senate, and the Democrats control both 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 chambers in Congress, and then obviously the the presidency. I had Chairman Camp on the podcast a, a couple months ago, where we spoke briefly about the Biden tax proposals, and certainly seems now like the opportune time to revisit those to really understand what potential legislative changes that we could see. 
maybe before I kick it over to you, I, I, I will note that I think you, Nita, you and I have waited our entire careers for a major tax reform change, right? We hadn't seen this tax reform. The, the last tax reform was well before we started practicing uh, tax law. And uh, now all of a sudden we have the prospect of another significant change to our, our corporate international tax system which is you know exciting and and terrifying both in its both in the in the same breath but let's start with with what some of those biden tax proposals are and you know knowing that the the trump proposal where he proposed a 15% corporate rate in his when he was up for president that you know what the what biden has proposed may be a, a far cry from what actually gets enacted but i thought we would start with the biden tax proposals can you walk us through some of those key provisions and i appreciate there are a lot but we're really going to be focusing on the cross border aspects not surprisingly so President-elect Biden has proposed a number of business tax um, provisions as part of his presidential campaign. Many of the proposals are designed to um, help with U.S. domestic production and um, manage the amount of offshoring. Some of the proposals of interest to this particular audience is an offshoring penalty surtax of 10%, which we imposed on the proposed higher corporate tax rate of 28%. And Doug will probably talk about whether or not 28% is where we um, envision the corporate tax rate going. Um, there's also a proposal to double the uh, tax on global low tax intangible income known as guilty. Um, also eliminating the exception for deemed returns under 10% of a qualified business asset investment or QBI and moving the guilty determination um, to a country by country basis instead of a blended average. Um, there also um, is a proposal to implement stronger and stricter anti-inversion rules under section 7874. We don't have a lot of specificity with respect to that proposal, um, but it is noted in the Biden-Harris fact sheet. Um, there's a proposal to deny all deductions um, and expensing write-offs, removing jobs, um, or productions overseas where such jobs could be offered by American workers. And, and lastly, um, there's a proposal to impose a 15% minimum tax um, on companies' global book tax income. Um, and so those are, you know, uh, the, the list of corporate tax proposals that um, have been mentioned by the, ba the Biden-Harris campaign and will likely see some, you know, interest in movement um, going forward. Holy cow. That's, there's, there's a lot there. So we're going to unpack, uh, unpack many of those here over the course of the next um, over the over the podcast. Um, but maybe before we talk about some of those specifics, are we back with this new administration to kind of business as usual? In other words, are we going to get a green book and have 
kind of this this thoughtful document that you know us tax nerds can read and think about the policy and those implications. We didn't really see that right with the 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 last administration. And um, I, I'm curious as to your thoughts. Like, and, and again, we'll unpack each of these individual provisions. But just from a kind of process perspective, do you see us kind of moving back to to where we were um, before the the Trump administration? Um, Doug, I think it's hard to predict um, whether or not things will go back to business as usual. And, and, you know, I question what is business as usual in the current environment going forward. But um, there could be an interest to put out a green book like we saw from the Obama administration. And what I find interesting with the green books is that um, they're not only specific to the administration that's um, currently in the White House, but also future administrations. What we saw back in 2017, um, while the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was being developed, um, even the Republican staffers were looking at prior green books for ideas and proposals, um, especially when you're trying to pass tax um, you know, changes through budget reconciliation and their uh, deficit and monetary constraints around the process, which we'll touch on later. So um, will we see a green book? I think there's you know, a better chance with this new administration of actually seeing a green book, but given the timing constraints, given that we're still in the middle of a pandemic, given the priorities of the administration, I don't know if you know, the Green Book is on the list of things that are going to come out, um, you know, immediately after the change in control or, you know, during this particular calendar year. Mm -hmm. Well, 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 time will tell. So let's let's in on on some of those specific provisions. But before we even get to likelihood of passing, just to to help shape the the discussion. So the first one um, it, it, let's start with with the rate, moving the rate up to 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 twenty eight percent. And then there was also a provision along those rate lines to double the rate on on. So I I think that technically it would move the the fifty percent section two fifty deduction to twenty five percent. So that the idea was the rate on the corporate the corporate rate would be twenty eight percent, and then the guilty rate would be twenty one percent. I, I know there have been some some Democratic members that have already stated publicly that they're not wouldn't be supportive of a of a twenty eight percent rate. I think even one of them may have said twenty five. Um, what are your views on 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 the rate and um, and is twenty eight percent likely or do we end up seeing some sort of compromise? You know, because uh, I remember the Trump proposal had said fifteen percent and it felt like the twenty percent was a compromise to that initial proposal. But what are your views on on potential rate corporate rate change and the guilty rate change? I, you know, I think changes to rates are an are easy starting point for the discussion. I mean, these are levers that can be pulled. They're estimates that can be provided um, depending on where the rate goes. Um, so I'm not surprised that, um, you know, companies are already discussing what potential rate increase is, you know, possible in the future. 28% 
rate increase, that that's going to be hard for members to digest. Even certain Democrat members, as you noted, uh, Doug, have already said 28% is way too high. Uh, with any increase in the corporate tax rate, you have discussions regarding companies moving offshore, you know, re-domiciliations, foreign acquisitions, are, are discussed, and, and that is counter to some of the policy and the consideration of the, you know, Biden um, or forthcoming Biden um, administration as well. And so I personally don't see a 28% tax rate increase in, in the, the near future. Um, do I anticipate some corporate tax rate increase? I do. Where that goes is going to be 25%. Will it be 23%? I think it depends on, you know, what are the priorities of the Democrats, what they need funding for, and um, also what other changes are going to be made to the, the corporate tax framework. You mentioned changes to guilty. Um, there could be a change to the guilty rate deduction. Um, also, the removal of QBI. Um, already, we, we you know read in the tax press. We hear discussions about the QBI provision providing some you know incentives that don't uh, fall in line with not only you know the the future Biden administration, but also some of the policy considerations of the um, you know Trump administration, and and so question whether if QBI is removed, um, what does that mean to the, the guilty rate? Instead of completely removing the Section 250 deduction, does something else happen? Of course, whenever there's a discussion about changes to QBI, it not only impacts guilty, but it also impacts FDII. And so those are questions that, um, and, and policy considerations that could also impact where the corporate rate goes. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I don't think it's going to be 28%, but any increase is also going to be dependent on what other um, changes to the international tax framework occur um, that you know can be viewed as pay-fors in keeping the rate low. And all of this too depends on whether or not um, the Democrats are seeking to, to find revenue for other priorities. And you know where the, the the deficit spending falls in line of a very long list of priorities um, of the forthcoming you know administration and Democratic controlled Congress. Yeah, to add a little bit of color to your Cubai comment, I think what what some have argued that uh, allowing uh, a U.S. multinational to reduce its FDI or to reduce its uh, guilty by Cubai is that it arguably encourages investment in those type of depreciable assets offshore. But as you noted, what's interesting, the same that Section two hundred and fifty deduction and that same general architecture also applies to foreign derived intangible income income that's earned in the U.S. And obviously, from a policy perspective, certainly Certainly, the Trump administration wanted to increase in investment in the U.S. So, whether those can somehow be decoupled, or um, you know, it will, will be very will be very interesting. I think the other point that I would note with respect to guilty is the proposal to move it to a country by country analysis. And what I what I think is very interesting, Nita, about 
eliminating QBI as well as the potential country by country for guilty is that that would be very consistent list what we've seen so far with the OECD's BEPS 2.0 as it is sometimes referred and specifically pillar two. And so it's, it's interesting that that would be kind of very consistent, at least with where those proposals are today. Obviously those that, that, that is a moving, is a moving target. Um, but a a any thoughts on kind of you know particularly the the tax policy and the o what the OECD framework and um and whether the Biden administration may be more focused on the OECD proposals uh, compared to maybe the, the the prior administration. Um, so moving guilty to a country by country um, determination is a is a very heavy lift. And Doug, in my view, part of the reason why um, you know TCJA and the changes to the international tax framework were actually you know enacted and, and found support um, was it did simplify you know the determination of guilty, which is rather harsh, by allowing aggregation. And and once you um, you know make the determination. Um, on a country by country basis, you, you, you sort of take away the the um, the compromise that companies were willing and constituents were willing to you know endure guilty so long as it was shown on an aggregate basis. Um, that being said, there's pressure from both you know the tax writing committees on the Hill as well as Treasury to have guilty um you know qualify for an exception under pillar two and as we see um, from the oecd the their guilty like proposal minimum tax proposal is um, proposed to apply on a country by country basis and so there's this you know delicate um dance that treasury and the tax writing committees as well they're they're staying on top of the developments of the obcd they're having to say okay well if guilty in its current state won't qualify for an exception what can we do and it's not only what can we do in line with the policies of you know the current administration or the forthcoming administration but it's also what can we do to make sure that our provision qualifies for an exception and so you know there's chatter about well maybe utilizing the high tax exception which treasury provided you know regs in order to you know apply this exception on an elective basis if there's something that could be you know, utilize with that particularly with that particular regulatory framework in order to make guilty in its current state, um, you know, qualify for an exception or just qualify, you know, under pillar two. Um, I think it's definitely something that's top of mind. Um, and you know, stepping back a bit, the 2017, um, you know, changes to the law, um, some of which are, are very novel. Guilty beat, they were not enacted before. You have the OECD that looked to the U.S. framework in order to de develop their pillar two, um, you know, proposals. And what we're seeing with the benefit of time is also ways in which guilty isn't working. 
And there's certain proposals, exceptions under pillar two that is shedding light on maybe some things that should be changed legislatively or, you know, if possible by rags um, to our guilty regime. And so I think it's not just um, trying to see whether our guilty in its current state can qualify under pillar two, but maybe what changes could prove helpful both from, you know, an economic perspective and from a business perspective going forward. So there's all these considerations, Doug, but, you know, at the end of the day, I would find it very difficult to apply guilty on a country by country basis um, and, you know, find support for that. Um, from the business community and and even from some of the democratic members and more you know conservative uh, with a more conservative constituent base. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of sympathy from policymakers related to compliance complexity as some of these rules have gotten enacted. And I just I think about you know uh, a U.S. multinational that operates in dozens of different countries. I mean that's that's a separate 1118 that's a separate foreign tax credit basket right for every single jurisdiction and it just makes my brain hurt thinking about applying expense apportionment across dozens and dozens of of different baskets and just from a compliance perspective the other comment that I wanted to make was you had mentioned kind of guilty and beat being novel. Well, we also have some novel proposals from the Biden administration, right? Which is this 15% minimum book tax. Um, and it's just like, okay, well, what really does book tax income mean? I mean, that seems like, you know, a, a very, you know, difficult thing to, to chase and given different industries have different margin. I mean, just that, that seems like really challenging. There is also the surtax that you had mentioned on offshore manufacturing and services to put companies, what they said, in an effective rate of 30.8% for those activities, and then a 10% made in America tax credit. Well, what's interesting me, Nita, about those last two is like, well, if they're trying to encourage investment in the U.S. and prevent offshoring, do, do we really need new provisions? Don't we have existing kind of levers and dials within the particular system, within the existing system, particularly FDII, subpart F largely, as well as guilty? Um, I, I question, do we really, need, you know, do we need more new novel tax concepts that really haven't been tested globally whatsoever? Right, Doug. I mean, those are the exact questions to ask, and those are the exact things that companies and their advisors need to educate um, the administration, the tax writing committees, and Treasury about. Um, you know, a fact sheet is, is just a sheet, and with bullet points, they're concepts that, you know, need to be developed. Um, as we say, the devil's in the details, and I'm not surprised to see very high-level proposals, some of which are, you know, so vague that they can't even be estimated without further detail. But this is exactly what um, companies should be doing, especially, you know, in the next six to 12 months, educating um, the administration and, and, you know, the tax writing staff about how new rules that are complicated don't necessarily result in, in good policy, whether, you know, there's a desire to change 
TCJA because the Democrats were not um, part of, of the discussions or whether there's something that can be, you know, tailored within the current framework to achieve some of the objectives that um, the next administration um, or the Biden administration is, is trying to achieve. Um, and so it's not surprising to see a lot of high level concepts at this period or, you know, during the campaign um, season. But as details come out, this is where it's really important to, um, you know, stay engaged, talk to uh, the tax writing committees about, um, you know, uh, potential changes. And one example, Doug, I think that we, you know, shows that it is helpful to talk to to, to Congress about, um, you know, what companies are facing right before the holidays, I think it was mid-December, we saw some bipartisan legislation um, from the House with respect to the beat that would basically, you know, turn off the beat for taxable years ending 20 in 2020. And I find comfort in anything that's bipartisan these days. And also the fact that, you know, it took companies going into um, the House and saying, look, the beat was an address during the CARES Act. It is problematic um, during an economic downturn, and we think some relief needs to be provided. Now, you know, a one-year moratorium is probably not enough, and, and we can discuss this in, in you know, in, in more detail about the, the future state of beat. Um, but um, I do think it's a sign where if, if companies go in and educate, you know, the tax writing committees and just members of Congress, even if they're not a member of one of the tax writing committees, about how these rules are working in practice, um, not only from an economic perspective, but Doug, to your point, from a compliance perspective, too. Um, there are people who are willing to listen and they are interested in actually trying to help. And so where this proposal goes, um, we don't know. It's just a proposal. Um, it wasn't enacted um, at the end of the at the end of the 2020 calendar year. But you know, I do find it comforting to see some um, bipartisan legislation on the international tax front. Totally agree. And it for, for, for Beat, um, to, to remind our, our listeners, I think there's been a number of challenges with the, the, the practical application of the Beat provision as it was enacted. But I think, you know, overwhelmingly, there are a number of U.S. multinationals that I would argue have been disproportionately impacted by Beat just based on their business models, where we know that the, it was really intended, um, it was in the inbound provision, it was really intended to prevent kind base eroding payments to uh, for a foreign non-US parented structure and so trying to to get that fixed or or even eliminated I, I think certainly makes sense and it's it's I I even further agree that man I really hope that we can have some bipartisan support for our next major tax policy per, per, uh, changes to to the extent that those do happen um and uh, uh, hopefully that is the the path going forward. And I, I agree that that proposal in December hopefully is a harbinger of, of things to come. Although there has certainly been a lot of of current events that have happened between um, then and and now that that could that could impact that.
So let's kind of go along those lines, Nita, on, you know, what is the likelihood of, of any of this really passing and um, remind listeners about the budget reconciliation process. But before I, I, I pass it over to you, uh, we'll remind folks that the, the Democrats have, a first of all, a very, very, very tight, the thinnest of majorities in the Senate, right? With 50-50, with Vice President Harris casting the deciding vote. So, you know, it, there's only so much progressivity that the Democrats could could put forth, knowing that that they they only have 50 votes, and there are a number of members in the Senate that are from conservative, relatively conservative districts. The the other thing to keep in mind is that right there will be midterms in in two years that could change obviously the Democrats' existing position. So it seems that there's a pretty tight window to be able to if the the Biden administration wants to get you know, tax changes through, you know, is that really likely to happen this first year because they wouldn't want to, to have that type of vote in, in, a, in an election cycle year? But what are your views and, and thoughts? And, and I will also remind folks that you and I are both practicing uh, tax lawyers, tax advisors, um, and so not necessarily policy specialists, but it doesn't prevent us from prognosticating. So, uh, Nita, what are, you, what are your thoughts? No, and I think these questions are on top of mind of, of you know, all advisors, anyone who's interested in, in, in tax. Um, and, and so I believe in addition to the tight time frame, the slim, um, slimmest of major majorities, there's also, um, you know, a long list of priorities that the Democrats, you know, have pulled together. And once again, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so the likelihood of comprehensive international tax reform, I just don't see occurring, you know, in 2021 retroactive to the beginning of this particular calendar year. There's just too many things going on. And I, you know, believe in my heart of hearts that pandemic relief is gonna be the, the first, you know, priority of the um, administration. And we saw on January the 11th already the House Ways and Means has put out um, a proposal dealing with, you know, health care and um, taxes related to inequities in, in health care. Um, and so I just don't see international tax reform being the first thing that um, the Democrats are going to focus on right out of the gates. Um, that being said, given the timing constraints and given the fact that there is an opportunity to have, um, you know, two budgets um, proposed during the 2021 calendar year, I'm not going to get into the weeds about budget reconciliation, but similar to 2017, there's a possibility of having, you know, a budget proposed dealing with pandemic relief and <clears throat> whatever um, other types of, of revenue that's needed to achieve some of the objectives of the Democrats. And then later on, because the government's on a fiscal year that ends September 30th, there's an opportunity to pass another budget that could be utilized for um, the reconciliation process that could um, result in some of the changes that are proposed in the Biden-Harris fact sheet. And 
you know, the budget reconciliation process, just to remind everyone, I know 2017 seems a long time ago, um, is allows uh, certain legislation to be passed without a supermajority. So instead of needing 60 senators to agree to a comprehensive, you know, change in law, you could utilize the budget reconciliation process and um, pass legislation with just a simple majority. And this would require, though, all of the 50 Democrat senators, along with Vice President Harris, to vote for um, a, a bill under the reconciliation process. And there's also limitations on what can be um, pass under reconciliation. It has to be revenue specific. You also cannot um, provide or um, you know enact any provisions that result in a deficit increase outside of the 10-year budget window. And that's where we see, you know, at least with respect to the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, some quirks with changes to the guilty rate, to the FDII rate, or deduction rather, and increase to the beat rate that's occurring in 2026. That's because TCJA was, um, you know, enacted under the reconciliation process. And I should note, because of some of the oddities associated with the reconciliation process, um, it's also why we, you know, call what is Public Law 117-97 TCJA in practice, but, um, you know, in, in, in actuality, it's not called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act because the title of the 2017 tax reform bill was changed because of the third rule and the fact that it was enacted under the reconciliation process. And so there's, you know, not only the, the quirks of the bird rule, but also the, you know, budgetary restraints that have to be, um, you know, noted and adhered to if legislation is going to be passed under the reconciliation process. And while it's a powerful, powerful tool, there are limitations. And so in my mind, I could see it being utilized, but for any of the international tax changes that we've discussed, I, I believe it's going to be towards the middle or latter half of the calendar year, not anything that we'll see in, in Q1 or, or Q2. Yeah, I, I'm with you on on that, Nita. And I, I think, you know, particularly some of the novel provisions that we mentioned would be just too big of a lift, it would seem, and given the short time frame, and frankly, the with the, with the Razorson majorities, and I'm sure that the Democrats will be looking for some bipartisan support. So, which makes me believe that well, the, those quote unquote easy levers are changing the corporate tax rate, and then changing the Section 250 deduction, and and that guilty rate, and and keeping the rest of the architecture. But uh, time time will tell for sure. So, so maybe the, the the last thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on is the the regulatory landscape. Um, we could probably dedicate an entire podcast just uh, to to this topic, but in in the last few minutes here, um, we've seen you know a whole flurry of regulations. I mean, a flurry of that uh, a blizzard. How about of of regulations over the course of the last three years? 
Um, I can't remember what the, the total page count, I think it was 20,000. I, I might have that off of, of total regs that, that have been out. Um, but it's, uh, pages it, it's, it's, you know, been overwhelming, but, but necessary in light of the new architecture. And then, you know, I think the, 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 the Trump administration's treasury department also was very focused on frankly, updating, correcting, um, changing some, some regulations, particularly in the international area to really get those those kind of up to date with the existing code. We've seen, uh, if, if the overall experience has been a blizzard, we've seen a recent flurry of regulations here towards at the end of the Trump administration, particularly what we've talked about here in the cross-border tax talks, the foreign tax credit regulations, and even more proposed regs. Um, what, what's your view on the regulatory environment? Um, are, are those regulations that were recently passed at, at risk of, 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 of getting pulled? You know, what, what's your views on what I think is, is largely a misconception of Democrats that the, uh, many of these regulations, I know the high tax exception has been one of those that these are corporate giveaways. And I think, you know, any of us in the industry are like, that's not exactly how these rules work in practicality. But uh, what's your view on the general views on the regulatory landscape? Well, Doug, I, I believe that Treasury has been working very hard since 2017 and they have put out very thoughtful, technical regulations in order to help administer what was enacted back in 2017. And, you know, unfortunately, there's still work left to do. And I do believe to the extent that their TCJA or, you know, non-TCJA related regulations that um, are not released before January 20th, where we have the transfer of power, um, those regs are likely going to be pulled and reviewed before being cleared. And that's just the way, you know, the regulatory process goes. And so, you know, to the extent there are regulations that are looming in the space where they've been reviewed, but they haven't been cleared, if they don't get cleared by the 20th of January, I, I foresee, you know, a, a slight pause and, and a, a review of whatever's in the queue. Um, there's also priorities with respect to certain rules like 864F, which um, you know went into effect at the beginning of this calendar year, 1-1-2021. Um, those, you know, that, that particular provision will require regulations and that's at the, you know, top of the priority of Treasury as well. And so there's a lot of work that has been done. There's work that, you know, will need to be done. And then you wonder whether some of the regulations that were, you know, pulled for consideration. Um, I, I think about the 385 regulations that were issued under the Obama administration that were, you know, reviewed and, and considered under the Trump administration, whether there'll be, you know, changes or um, an evolution of those regs under the Biden administration. And so there are different lots of, of regulations. I, you know, in addition to all of the work that Treasury's been doing on the 2017 Act and, and regs associated with that, there's also all of the OECD work as well. And so, I think it's a long-winded way of saying Treasury's done a lot. Their work is not, you know, done. And um, 
it will be interesting to see whether there's a freeze or, you know, whether it's just a pause and then, you know, also movement on, on what regs have been issued and, and what regs have already been developed but need to be cleared. Yeah, th this is going to be fascinating to to see how the the, the new administration reacts to um, a, a lot of those regulations and then the process as you mentioned it. All right, so so Nita, we, we had talked about I, and you had mentioned, I want to remind our listeners um, that how important it is for constituents, taxpayers to to get involved in in the process, and just wanted to to mention that in closing, but because um, I, I think you did a really nice job articulating kind of why that is important, particularly early in this year to, to, to talk to staffers and uh, to, to their members uh, about what some of these changes, particularly some of these novel concepts that maybe haven't been fully baked um, about, about you know, what the consequences of enactment might, might be to, to certain taxpayers in that position. But maybe I want to, I want to end with, with, with predictions. Um, what is your view and, and what is your view, Nita, on, on what's going to happen this year? Um, predictions from uh, corporate and international tax changes by, by the end of, of 2021. Um, boy, it's a good thing I'm not a betting gal um, because I, I feel like if I had to predict and put money on it, I'd, I'd surely lose it. But um, I believe that we um, a slight increase to the corporate tax rate, um, unlikely retroactive to the beginning of the 2021 calendar year, but a prospective corporate rate increase. I wouldn't be surprised if we also see changes to guilty from a rate perspective, whether or not um, we'll see a, an elimination of QBI is, um, you know, is, is still open in my mind because I think not only does that impact guilty, it also impacts the FDII, which the Biden-Harris fact sheet silent um, about. So if I had to predict anything, it would be a slight increase of the corporate tax rate, um, maybe some sort of tempering of the Section 250 deduction um and unfortunately i don't anticipate a comprehensive uh change to the beat but i could be proved wrong all right well we are we are very aligned so um with with that nita thank you very much uh, always great talking to you and and getting some of your inside the beltway uh, insights thank you thanks for having me all right. Well, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks again to Nita Asher, International Tax Partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services Group. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader in the U.S. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.